Buckle that belt. The neighbor is already threatening to call the cops. He's pissed. If you get anxious, man, you just pop these little guys. People out here looking like Paul Feinbaum trying to tell us what to do with our hair. In my overserved state, I went to the wrong house. No, it was the right house. Okay. Dive bar means the beer is cold, the drinks aren't too expensive, and the hamburgers are great. They are a unified front in doing their very best to keep me between the proverbial navigational beacons. Shut up, Travis. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the Marty Smith Podcast. It is a, it is a cornucopia of pathetic decisions this morning. <laughs> Uh, we'll give you a quick rundown here. I was going to say cornucopia of idiots. I mean, so as you guys know who listen to this every single week, I have spent my summer doing the show at the coffee shop here in Ocean City, New Jersey, Ocean City Coffee, where we spend our summers. Sadie, quit growling at people. That ain't nice. Well, I go down there this morning where we're uh, going to do our podcast for this week. And I can't find this cord that allows me to use this microphone I'm holding in my hand so that Wesley, Travis, and I can tape the Marty Smith podcast. I don't know where it is. Have I misplaced it? I'm pretty, Wes, I'm pretty neurotic about putting everything back exactly where I got it for you know, the I'm not, I'm not, uh, not going to lie, man. I was kind of surprised that you forgot something. I was like, wow, Marty usually travels pretty light and has his stuff in order. Now, now see, this is this is this is BS though a little bit. I'm calling you out because you've forgotten IFBs before, you've forgotten chords before. So this neurotic thing, I think, mm, let's, I'm going to push back a little bit on your uh, organization of your equipment. Okay. Well, Travis, I mean, look, you you have you definitely have the breadth of knowledge uh, regarding kind of my day to day operations. So I get to Ocean City Coffee and I don't have this cord, uh, and I'm flummoxed. I don't know where it is. And so I uh, just tell Travis and Wesley, boys, I I don't know. I can't tape the podcast. I, I thought I had it solved because when I went down to Destin, Florida, for the SEC meetings back in uh, May, late May, early June, I was uh, gifted this battery pack that you plug directly into your cell phone, your iPhone, and everything works great. And I'm like, oh, that's the same. It's the same thing. Same. What do you call it? Head? What do you call that thing? Port. That plugs into the phone. Uh, a port? Port. All right. It's the same port. Same like, charging money. thing. I'm going to get out of this unscathed here. And then I tried to plug it in. didn't work. So I came back over the house. And I'm like, all right, well, let me just retrace all my steps, like my spots that I hang out in the house and where I do my work here and everything. Well, uh, it's not there. And then my puppy dog comes running in. And... I make a move to evade stepping on my puppy dog and I trip over something else and it's the damn cord. No, no so way. So one of two things happened. It was just on the ground Either, somewhere? Hey, it was just laying right there on the ground. And Laney had, Laney had scoured the earth trying to find this thing before I came home from Ocean City Coffee. So one of two things happened. Either A... It fell out of my backpack or something, and I had it all along. Or B, the dog brought it to me. Which Sadie's I mean, she's a smart pup, show. but she ain't that smart. Regardless, I found the 
I found a chord. Good morning, everybody. Good evening, everybody. Good afternoon, everybody. Wesley's here. Travis is here. Sadie's here. The neighbor's kids, as you can hear, they're here. I didn't feel like riding back over to the coffee shop, so we're hanging out on my porch today. Is this um, the last episode from Jersey? This is the last episode. Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That might be a lie. Wow. No. No, it's not. Okay. No. I was about to say, I'm you got to get next City week, a so proper send-off. I got a wild week coming up here, gentlemen. First, before we talk about my wild week coming up, let's talk about the experience that was. So, a couple, I don't know, a couple months ago, Laney and I, all right, let me back up even further. Daytona 500. Daytona 500 runs uh, in, in mid-February, and during the Daytona 500, I get a text message from Luke Combs. And the text message is to me and Dale Jr., and it says, hey, boys, uh, the boys and me stayed here because Luke played a pre-race concert down there at Daytona. He said, hey, we stayed for the race, and we can't roll until, you know, all the traffic dissipates. So y'all come over. I got, I, got a, I got a bus full of Miller Lite. I mean, Luke Combs is sponsored by Miller Lite, and so he's got a lot of Miller Lite. So we go over there, hang out. We're hanging out after the race for a long time, uh, and – during which he tells us, him and, and Cappy, his manager, tell us that they have scheduled all these stadium shows for this summer. He played Denver. He played Seattle. He played uh, Travis Rockhold's Backyard last weekend in C-Bus in OH. I.O. And, uh, and, and the last stop on that stadium run was the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Love you. Laney just rode by. Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. And so Luke says to Junior and me, y'all got to come to these shows. You got to come to one of these shows. Y'all pick one. And so we looked at it. The best date felt like it was the one in Atlanta. And so Laney and I booked it. I mean, I booked, this was months ago, booked flights, booked rental cars, booked hotels, restaurant reservations, the whole nine. Well, then I started looking at my schedule. I'm going this week. Uh, actually, I'm leaving leaving tomorrow as we tape this. Travis is coming down as well. I'm going down to uh, Austin, Texas for a, an event for Academy Sports and Outdoors that is going to be amazing, which I'll explain more in a, a, a future episode. They're doing a super cool collaboration that is being unveiled down in Austin, and Randy Rogers Band is doing a, a concert. And so uh, I'm going to go down there and, and uh, hang out with my great friends from Academy Sports and Outdoors. And uh, I managed to finagle an interview with the Randy, Randy Rogers band out of this. And so I told Travis to book a flight to Austin, Texas. So do I have, to, then, work or, do I have to work or do I, can I just go to the Tito's factory? Seriously, dude, all you really have to do is show up with your equipment, sit there for 20 minutes and make sure that my microphone works, and then – drink a lot of alcohol cool. while we watch Randy Rogers band. Yeah. What time and should I get there, guys? Come on, bro. Book a flight. I don't bother you with that type of it was such a late request. Here's the thing, Wes. It was literally I think I think it was Thursday night. Here's the difference between Travis and Wes. Wes is a responsible adult. He has a <laughs> child. He is has experienced holy matrimony. Travis is a uh. idiot. I mean who, who's on your shirt? Taylor Swift? No, uh, that's Topanga um, from Boy Topanga. Meets World. <laughs> Boy Meets World. Who? I think Boy Meets World is after Marty's time for sure, right? I never heard of it. Yeah, never it's heard gotta of it. Got to be. 
Um, but so we're going down there to do that, and then I'm coming home the next day, going to Charlotte the next day, because I think I've explained that I have a bachelorette party all next week at my house in Charlotte. Uh, holy smokes! Anyway. You're not responsible uh, for buying the like decorations of that, are you? Because you, that, you, brother, that could I, get a little it, hairy. Just, just, just trust me on this. When I see you next time I come to Athens and you take me over to the Terrapin Brewery, uh, I have a story for you for days that is not befitting this particular I can, platform. I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, but I've been. Uh, I, I'm going home on the third to Charlotte. I'm going to be the boat captain for a bunch of young ladies. Just be and careful. And on the, on the 4th, I'm playing in a golf tournament at Charlotte Country Club. The 5th, ESPN McGee and I are hosting ESPN The Ocho Takeover on ESPN2. What a great event. At which uh, I am once again participating in the Cornhole Championship. Once again, paired with cornhole professional Ryan Smith, with whom I won last year. Now, here's where it gets interesting, all right? This is why I'm telling you all this whole itinerary. If I defeat former Virginia, University of Virginia Wahoo Terry Kirby. Oh, snap. It's a Virginia matchup. Yep. If I defeat Terry in round one, which, you know, who knows, uh, Ryan might be off that day. I might not be on my A game that day and may lose. But if I win, guess who I play in round two? The winner of Doug Flutie Ooh. versus Jay Cutler. No way. Oh. So Outside the semifinals of, of the American Cornhole League Ocho Championship might be an outsider extravaganza if we both hoop in round one. So it can only happen in the semifinals, though. This can't be a mm -hmm. potential championship. Okay. The other side of the bracket is Dawn Staley oh. against uh, – I'll have to look it up. I forget. Travis can look it up. It's on my tweeter machine right now, T. Yeah, I'm aware. But So that's Friday. McGee and I are doing that all day Friday, and then he and I are back in studio in the Wilderness Lodge for Marty and McGee Saturday. So, okay, so it's uh, a huge she, week coming up here. Do what? Don's going against Chris Chris Weidman, the UFC fighter, and then right, in, below, okay. in the bottom is Ben Rector versus uh, the Situation from Jersey Shore. The Situation. So imagine if it was a championship bout between the boy from Appalachia. And the situation from the Jersey Shore. And the ironic twist is that the boy from Appalachia actually pays taxes on the Jersey Shore. <laughs> and the situation's never even really been here. And this ah, your, yes, your, life, your life is just coming at you in this uh, cornhole tournament here. It is. I need you to pecker woods. I can't say pecker woods. I guess my, my podcast, I could if I want yeah, to. Yeah, you but. can say that. Uh, yeah, I need you guys there for for moral support. Remember, uh, remember, where is it? Okay, where is it at? You were, it's in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Oh I mean, yeah, I'll I'll go. Do they have? I uh, mean, I so could, instead of flying home from Austin, should I just head to Charlotte and? Do I need to get credentials to. for this? What do I, I mean, need you to could do? also, you could also be on the boat, uh, Travis, uh, on the bachelorette party. I'll, I'll I be think the bar, Patrick. I'll be the bartender. Coming. I'll be the bartender. So. 
No, you won't. You, well, you'll, you will. You'll be the bartender at the Country Music Festival who's seven sheets to the wind while tr- supposedly serving drinks to everybody else, sampling each drink that he or she passes the, oh, across the, the counter. But huge week. Uh, anyway, I don't know how I got off on that tangent when I was trying to finish my Luke Combs uh, story. So Luke tells Junior and me, hey, y'all got to come. So Lainey and I have booked this whole thing. Well, as I looked at this week that I just described, I was like, man, I can't. Going to Atlanta doesn't make any sense. Like, that's just, I need to rest. College football's coming. We only have a few more days here at the beach. So I canceled the trip altogether. And we weren't going to go. And then Laney and I started having FOMO. Like, as soon as I hit cancel on American Airlines, Laney was like, I don't know if I like that decision. I don't know if that's a good decision. Because she and I, we love country music shows. That's our favorite thing. And so as we got inched further and closer to the actual show, we reversed course once again, and I said, screw it. And I booked flights and booked hotels and everything, and we went down there with our daggum. I mean, we, we went down there like Bo and Luke Hood sliding across the General Lee and slid right into Mercedes-Benz Stadium at 8.40 p.m., and Luke took the stage at 9.02. And i tell you guys, man, I, I want to share this, man. Like, there were 50-plus thousand people in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium to see Luke play this show. And it was a remarkable thing to witness. And even though there were all those fans in there singing every single word of every single song back, I mean, when you're a guy like him, basically every I mean, every song he's ever sent to radio went to number one, right? So everybody knows every word to all of them, even from terrestrial radio, much less streaming. And the neatest part of that whole night to me was I'm standing there in the pit with Laney and all of Luke's co-writers were there. And they were all standing in the pit. And I'm sitting there watching our boy Ray Fulcher stand seven rows from the stage, eight rows from the stage, with a beer in his hand. And, and y'all, he's just sitting there like staring up at Luke perform. And it was obviously this moment. I mean, I mean, Ray wrote, When It Rains It Pours. Like, Luke's singing when it rains, it pours. And everybody's losing their minds, singing every word back. And Ray's just kind of standing there, almost with a dumbfounded look on his face. And it was obvious to me as his friend that he was immersed in the holy smokes. This is unbelievable that when we sat down in that room together, and had this ridiculous idea about, you know, tanks of gas and lottery tickets and my mother-in-law I don't have to talk to ever again, that it would become this. And it was just a really fun moment. I actually took a video of him in that moment where I forget what song No, so was, I was going to ask you, it was for um, Does To Me. Which well, that was a different video. That was that was a different video because I walked over there and we sang it together. Wasn't that cool? Wasn't well, that so neat I was gonna, to see? I was going to ask you that. Have you ever been 
by a writer when they're watching their friend who sings it perform? What would like? Have you ever been in that situation before? Um, I I have with Casey Bethard. I have with Luke Laird. But they're different personalities. I mean, the the the, the context is so important in something like that because. I mean, Luke wrote, Luke Laird wrote Carrie Underwood's catalog, right? So if you imagine what it would have been for, like for Luke Laird the first time that he was standing at a Carrie Underwood stadium show and, you know, seeing her sing 10 songs he wrote for her. It was probably the most surreal thing ever because it's your life's work. But it was definitely the first time, Travis, that I've seen that I mean my buddy so so I have these two Dan and Reed Isbell are great friends to me and have been for 15 years they are hunters fishers and writers that's their lives good old boys from Mississippi they're Mississippi State Bulldogs and I love them like brothers and Dan uh had you know he wrote uh several songs with Luke Combs but, you know, to see Reed for the first time experience a song he wrote come back to him, I, the man was in tears. And that's just a, it's the neatest thing to see those guys experience that. Ray is kind of in an like, interesting boat right now because he's got his own album out, obviously. And I see on his social media he's promoting that, but he's also, you know, playing his own version of songs off of luke's new album and you can tell he's proud of that too and he's like this is how i i play it but y'all go check out luke's album so from the outside looking in yeah it's cool to see that that's the difference between Marty. i think you were saying with being by casey is he's not chasing that the dream of his own where you know ray is i asked luke laird once we were in las vegas nevada I mean, this was like 2011, something like that. And uh, I asked him why he like didn't decide he wanted to be an artist. Like, why not be an artist? And he was like, I can basically can see my life's work without all the crap that comes with being an artist. Like, I don't have to be a public figure. I don't have to deal with all the mess. I just get to pour my heart out and let someone else take that, make it their own, and share my soul. Can walk up and down Broadway, and, hear his songs played, but not be noticed. Yeah. it's uh, It was just a really neat night, and I'm so glad Laney and I did it. My, my buddy Louis Bourgeois and his wife Kate, uh, Louis is the equipment manager over at LSU. Uh, it, was the, it was the SEC. I could have guessed that imagine. by the name. I mean, the entire, yeah, yeah. I remember the first time that I introduced him to somebody, and I called him Louis Bourgeois, and he was like, "Hey, no, this is Louis Burgess." Uh, like, like somebody introducing me and saying, "Hey, this is uh, my friend Marty Smythe." I still and think West that over, over in uh, the home country. What's up? I still think West. We made out. We got Luke Combs koozies. I think that's slightly better than going and seeing Luke play at Mercedes Benz. I think we. Oh, I think yeah. we win still. Luke texted me too. I said. Who is this? Uh, <laughs> new phone. New number. Who this? Who is this? Luke Coombs? Who's that? Yeah, sorry, pal. No interest. 
I'll be at Mercedes-Benz Stadium enough this year, I think. You know what I did this weekend? This ought to be good. I went to I went to WWE SummerSlam on Saturday. Oh, how was that? It was so I don't know any I don't follow wrestling, but I have a friend that kind of does. So I said, you know, come on down. Uh, and then I had another friend fly in town just because. Um, and so we went, and I had a blast, man. It is the production that WWE does is unreal. And then seeing it outside, end, like how cool is that? And then to end the night, Brock Lesnar was in some sort of tractor. And he literally lifted the ring up with the the uh, the tractor to like dump the dude out. Like it is, and to see these people doing flips off the top rope. Uh, Pat McAfee was wrestling that night. Got the W. Like it was an awesome. It was a cool thing. Also, might be the best people watching event ever is uh, wrestling. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the people watching. I mean, a lot a lot of grown men wearing title belts walking around. Were they wearing? Uh, like singlet, like unitards. I did not see anybody in that. Um, but man, they also when like a wrestler would come out, they didn't like him. They would boo, and if a wrestler came out that they liked, they would cheer. And so that this one guy came out. I didn't. I have no idea who he was, and they um, they were cheering for him, and they were doing like it was like AJ Styles, and they'd do the whole clap thing. But then I would I stood up and just started yelling "sucks" after every time they said AJ Styles, and a couple fans looked at me like, "What is going on?" How, what was your blood alcohol content? I was so I told Wes before I was never drunk or like I was just at the, like that. I never like got hungover. I was just at that like perfect medium where I'm like feeling it, but like I kept it at like you know kept it in between the navigational That's beacons. That's good. Speaking of wrestling, uh, the nature boy prevailed. Yeah. This headline I just found says, fans of renowned wrestler Ric Flair, 73, expressed relief that he survived his brutal final match. I'm, yep. I'm glad he survived, too. Me, too. Um, it was interesting last week, though, wasn't it? Like, he was genuinely nervous mm-hmm. that he would not have the stamina to perform like Ric Flair fans expect him to perform. And fortunately, uh, although he was worn slap out at the end of that thing, uh, he I mean, he put on a show, man. He's a nature boy. And I got so much feedback from that interview. I don't know if you guys did, but, man, I got all kinds of feedback from our chat with the nature boy. Yep. That dude's – that dude is uh, – Generational. I mean, we said it to him last week. Like, when you have college football teams going, give me three claps and a Ric Flair, it's uh, – I mean, the guy's 73 years old. He's been doing it 50-something years and still that relevant. I wrote about it for uh, Dogs HQ, and it was our biggest story of the year. And the uh, Georgia you fans – You serious? Yeah. And the, the Georgia fans on the message board – basically had the same reaction for Ric Flair that Ric Flair had for Kirby Smart. So there's no love lost there. We're all we're all Goldberg go guys dogs. over at Dogs HQ. One, two, three, go dogs. Um well obviously uh Goldberg and Flair and all those guys have been inspirational to a whole bunch of people. And speaking of inspirational, we had the opportunity late last week to chat with a guy that I was unfamiliar with until Travis introduced kind of his story to me. And 
uh, once I started studying his story, we made the decision that we definitely wanted to have him on the show. We wanted to learn more about him. Um, and I'm so glad we did. Uh, we, I left this interview so inspired because it's, I try very hard to be where my feet are. I'm not good at it, but I try really hard to do it. And the entire premise of Colin O'Brady's new book, The 12-Hour Walk, is to be where your feet are, to unplug from all of the technology that consumes our lives constantly. We feel like if we're not on our devices, if we're not... uh, constantly in contact with everything that we're missing something unfortunately when we're in constant contact we're kind of missing life a little bit and it was awesome to chat with colin about his resume the man's done i mean he has two world records he has no no he has or 10 right travis 10 world records he's summoned at mount everest twice he has done these crazy rowboat trips that are, I, I mean, I just, I, God bless him. I can't imagine what possesses somebody to do these things, but it's inspirational. And he's actually hell. a normal and guy he, when you talk to him. That's the, the wildest super normal. thing. He walked across Antarctica super normal. for 54 days. That's crazy. That's a, 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 that is crazy. Um, but grateful for his time. Y'all are going to love this chat. Uh, tune in like closely to his words because what he says here is so applicable to every one of our lives right now even though we're not transversing the globe i'm not sure that's the right word i transverse broadway some would argue that that's harder to do well there's yeah i mean travis's travis's daily walk is very similar to colin's daily walk travis um Travis gives us the traffic report from I-65 out his window. Travis gives us a, a, a blow-by-blow from uh, his Tito's consumption at the uh, condo pool. Yeah. The difference is Travis is taking on Travis, and Colin is taking on the planet. So that's a little a little different. So, some would say mine's harder. It's just a little bit different. Guys, for all your back-to-school needs, we're getting to that time. We're getting ready to get out of here from the beach and head back to Charlotte because my kids start school second week of August. It is officially back-to-school time. And for whatever you need for back-to-school, clothes. Every kid wants brand-new sneakers as they head back to school. Go get it at Academy Sports and Outdoors, your back-to-school headquarters. They have everything y'all need for football coming up. For whatever your fall sports season is at the school you go to or your kids go to, Academy Sports and Outdoors has it. Go by your local academy. They have what you need. I know I'm going to be heading back there as soon as we get back to Charlotte. Our kids want brand-new drinking bottles. Everybody wants the water bottle. Brand-new water bottle for school. We get ours at Academy Sports and Outdoors. You can, too. Cleats, sneakers, gear from every single national brand. Adidas, Under Armour. Certainly the swoosh. Whatever y'all need, Academy Sports and Outdoors has it. 
I am so grateful to be a part of their company. Go check them out. They got everything, and I mean everything. I just lost a pocket knife again. When I go in there, I'm going to try to get a new one. Academy Sports and Outdoors. Laney is shaking her head at me. You're not getting any new pocket knives. Little does she know. Head over to Academy. They got everything you need. Without further ado, here is our super inspirational interview with world explorer and adventurer, Colin O'Brady. All right, as we stated earlier, it's awesome to have Colin O'Brady on the Marty Smith podcast here. Let me try to run down the world's most impressive resume. All right, this dude holds 10 world records. He summited Mount Everest twice. He even had the wherewithal and the awareness to Snapchat from there for like, I don't know, 20 million people. His first book, The Impossible First, is a New York Times bestseller. His second book, The 12-Hour Walk, is due out today. I recently received a copy, Colin, and read a good chunk of it. I've not finished it yet. It's a super interesting concept that ultimately lands, in my estimation, on self-awareness and presence in the constant clutter of today's world that we're all managing and recalibrating the mind from can't to can, haves to have-nots, uh, haves over have-nots, half-empty you know, to half-full. And I was really taken by what I've read so far. So let's just start at the ground level foundation, brother. Where and how did you grow up and what led to your fascinating interest in exploration? Yeah, well, it's great to be here with you guys. I, uh, you know, I kind of came into this world in a somewhat untraditional context. Um, I, uh, I was actually born on a, a hippie commune in Olympia, Washington, uh, with 30 people at a home birth um, with my mom playing Bob Marley Redemption song on repeat. So uh, you could say... Uh, okay, that's a good introduction <laughs> to the world right there, Hoss. Exactly. So pe- people were partying, hanging out, and, uh, you know, I was born playing some music. So... <laughs> Uh, that, that's how I came into the world. Um, but yeah, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, mostly uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, so uh, spent a lot of time out there. I, uh, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. Um, but my dad always used to say, you know, the outdoors are free. He's, he's an Eagle Scout. And so he'd say, like, let's drive out to a trailhead. Let, let's go to an alpine lake. Let's go for a walk. Let's go for a, a, a bike ride, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so it wasn't as if he was taking me uh, to Antarctica to walk across solo like I eventually did or things like that. But he certainly piqued my interest by just kind of exploring nature um, in, in Oregon. And uh, that, that certainly uh, laid a foundation for many of the expeditions and things that I've done over the course of my life. So when did all the wild-ass explorations become a calling for you? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of been iterative over time. Uh, you know, my first big world record project uh, was in 2016, um, so it wasn't until I was about 30 years old. Um, so it's been, uh, you know, it's been iterative over time. But you know, if I if I thought if I could think about a, a massive turning point in my life that sort of you know moved in one direction or the other, um, you know, I would say. You know, when I was just after college, I, I had always wanted to travel. I wanted to adventure. Like I said, I didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid, but I, uh, I uh, saved up painting houses in the summer, and I decided to go for a trip around the world after I graduated college. Um, took a backpack, took a surfboard, um, and went into the world for for a little bit of an adventure. Again, it was it was on the cheap, man. It was like the cheapest student tra- travel. You with like the longest layovers and like you know hitchhiking, uh, sleeping on random people's floors. You know, saving up just enough money to have some beers at night and mess around. Like it was that kind of a. But it was, you know, you're young out in the world. It's fun. Um, all until I found myself on this small beach in rural Thailand, and I 
end up deciding to jump a flaming jump rope because you know i'm 22 years old and that looks like a good idea what could possibly go wrong um you're invincible at that point in your life right um and unfortunately in an instant my life changed uh natural consequences stuck in that rope wrapped around my legs and lit my body completely on fire to my neck uh fortunately i jumped in the ocean which saved my life but not before 25 percent of my body was severely burned predominantly my legs and my feet um, and I found myself, you know, I'm in rural Thailand on an island off the coast. So there's no hospital. There's a moped ride down a dirt path to a one room nursing station. Um, I mean, it, it was a bad deal. And the worst part about it is the doctor walks in around day three, day four, and he looks at me in the eye and he goes, Hey, Colin, I hate to tell you this, but you'll probably never walk again. Normally, um, your, your legs are so badly burned with your ligaments, your knee joints, your ankle joints, like you're not going to get full mobility back. Um, Thankfully, there is a heroine to this story, which is my incredible mother, the same one who wanted to birth me on a futon on a hippie commune in Olympia, Washington. Mom's pretty awesome, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's cool. She's a cool lady for sure. Um, and Most people have gender reveal parties, and she just had a human reveal party. <laughs> exactly. Hey, we're having. A, what, what are you guys doing? Tonight? We're having a baby. Come on over. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Jack's in the reveal. cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so, anyways. I don't, as a mother, I can only imagine what it's like to see your kid in Thailand, not being able to walk this horrible diagnosis. And she told me now she was crying and pleading with the doctors for any semblance of good news, not getting it. But she didn't show me that fear. You know, she, she came into my hospital room every day with this huge smile on her face and this air of positivity, kind of daring me to dream about the future. Um, it's a concept I talk about in the book now. I didn't call it at the time, but I call it a possible mindset, you know, an empowered way of thinking that locks a life of limitless possibilities. Just she's like, yeah, you screwed up. Yep. You burned yourself. You, you're a dumb kid. You made a mistake, but like your life's not over. Like, what do you want? What do you want to do? And I was like, I don't want to play this game, mom, but she kind of forced me into to visualize anything. And I said, okay, that sounds ridiculous. I closed my eyes. I said, I just saw myself cross the finish line of a triathlon. And she could have easily said, like, you know, hey, you know, I said set a goal, but, like, the legs and what the doctor said, like, maybe something a little more realistic. Yeah, it's a little bit of an obstacle right now. Yeah. She's like, nah, cool. In fact, you know what? Let's start training right now. Right now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, hey, doc, my son's training for a triathlon. Bring him in some weights. And I got this picture. I'm bandaged from the waist down. There's, like, blood and pus seeping through the gauze on my legs. But I'm lifting these 10-pound dumbbells. And this Thai doctor's looking at me like, this stupid American kid's telling me he's training for a triathlon. It knocks some <laughs> sense into this, this knucklehead. Um, but... You know, it was fixed in my mind. And fast forward, you know, it was 18 months uh, later. But, well, excuse me, it was three months later that I left Thailand. Still still couldn't walk. Uh, I was in a – carried on and off the plane. I was in a wheelchair when I got home. Slowly my mom helped me learn how to walk you know, one step at a time. Had some good occupational therapists and stuff. And then eventually I moved to Chicago to, to try to, you know, get, get a job. Um, you know, I know you guys are connected with Jay Cutler. It was actually right when Jay uh, got the got the, the the quarterback job in the for the Bears, literally that year, 2008, 2009, when I moved there um, for that job. I remember him seeing him out at some nightclubs, actually, funny enough, uh, in my early 20s. That's a shocking uh, statement right yeah. there. <laughs> we are floored by that one. Uh, but um, it's the same era as that. But during that time, while I was, other than when I was clubbing with Jay, um, I, uh, no, I, um, you know, basically said I want to, I want to race this triathlon. So I, um, 
I uh, started charter training. You know, I could, like I said, I could barely walk and then could jog a little bit, rehab. But I ended up racing the Chicago Triathlon and um, finished the race 18 months after being told I'd never walk again. But the kicker is I actually didn't just finish the race, but I won the entire uh, Chicago Triathlon. And I know it's somewhat of a long-winded story. Like, how'd you get into adventure? Like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, burn yourself in a fire in Thailand. But for me, it's this massive turning point in my young life. Like, had my mom not instilled that mindset in me in that moment, that turning point, like we wouldn't be having this conversation. Or, you know, I sit here very humbly with 10 world records, but I always remind people, like, I set those 10 world records after being born. It's not after being burned, excuse me. Um, you know, not before. And, and I've come to realize, you know, for me, sometimes our hardest moments, the most difficult things we go through, I wouldn't wish the pain of that on my worst enemy, but it also sure taught me some of life's greatest lessons and and I'm stronger for it. And so that really, that set me off on uh, uh, a life of of curiosity about pushing the limits of human potential. What am I capable of? I raced triathlon professionally for a number of years after that. And then, um, yeah, went on to uh, basically go after all these big expeditions, which has been the better part of the last uh, decade. I know Wes has a question, but I want to just say this real quick. Your accomplishments are mind-boggling and jaw-dropping and and whatnot, and we'll dive into those. But your mother's influence and your mother's passion for not allowing you to settle, it it just speaks so loudly and with so much resounding volume of of a parent's influence on a young person. And you weren't a kid at that point. You were a grown-ass man at that point. But her coming there, getting on an airplane, flying to a foreign country, showing up, seeing her little boy burnt to to a crisp, and the instant instant reaction to that is, you ain't done. You're going to do great things, so you may as well snap out of the pity party right now because I'm not having it. I think that that is such a beautiful testament to their influence in our lives. So thank you for sharing that. All right, Wes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, You write in the book just about how, you know, you're pushing yourself and how this discomfort really unlocks these possibilities in your life. But how much of this is you wanting to prove what you can do versus I want to beat the out of planet Earth? Because that's what it feels like. It feels like you have like this Michael Jordan meme of your life. You've taken this personal and now you just want to prove to the planet, Hey, I can climb your mountains. I can row across your, uh, Drake passage. I can walk across Antarctica. Is there any part of you that, you know, is fueled by, by, it seems like you're competing against the planet right now. Hmm. That's a good way. I'm not sure anyone's ever said that to me before, but, uh, that's an interesting, uh, a take on that. You know, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, high performance in sport and pushing myself has always been a goal. You know, as a little kid, I was always dreamed of uh, swimming in the Olympics or when I raced trout from professional and wanted to make, you know, I was always, always wanted to, you know, kind of push myself at the highest level. Um, but interestingly enough, like switching away from, I guess, quote unquote, more traditional sports or Olympic path or something like that, not to knock that path, but 
you know, the outdoors and mother nature is like the final decision maker, right? You know, it's like when you're on, you're on the, you know, running track and field or you just swim race or whatever, you know, there's rules, there's regulations, there's a judge, there's a this, like when you're out there pulling the 375 pound sets slow-low across Antarctica, I'll tell you who the judge is, mother nature, like a 75 mile per hour headwind when, you know, minus 40 degrees outside, like, you know, there, there's no just raising your hand and be like, yeah, I'm not having a good race today. Let me just step off the track. Like you're in it, right? You're, you're full, fully immersed. And so for me, you know, that was, that was the next level, then the next layer of that, you know, truly life or death stakes. But what's interesting is that, you know, I, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that, you know, sure there, there's parts of me that, that, you know, my ego want to prove that, get these world records, you know, that certainly have been a driving force in the past, but it's, interesting that it's become a little bit more of an inward or a little more for lack of a better word spiritual journey for me you know it's it's what what am i capable of um and moreover you know with the 12 hour walk the new book um it's how can i transmute that to inspire people at scale because what i've realized is you know, people can read, the, you know, very, very kind to read the resume and all that kind of stuff and be like, all right, well, this dude just must be like some superhuman guy that's just different than the rest of us. But what I've come to realize, honestly, and I fundamentally believe this, this is not just lip service, that all of us, every single human walking this planet, that we have reservoirs of untapped potential inside of us. And I love to say that the most important muscle any of us has is the six inches between our ears. But the problem is, is in our modern society, we don't often enough flex and develop that. You know, we, we sit, we sit comfortably, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm on social media, but we too often just scroll on social media, binging Netflix, like just kind of be in life on autopilot. And, and so for me, it's a passion for saying, Hey, I love exploring these places, but can I, can I share that with the world in a way that that has impact? I mean, for me, I sort of think about life on the scale of one to 10, uh, you know, one being our lowest, lowest moments, you know, burning myself in that fire in Thailand was for sure one and 10 being these peak moments of life, you know, high achievement or whether that's falling in love or the day your first child is born or having amazing sex or skiing perfect path. We know what tens are, right? They're epic moments, right? We love tens. Everyone loves a good 10, right? Like, you know, that's what's up. But here's the thing. Every time I've reached these peak arcs, these peak moments in my life, these tens, at first, I was like, oh, I'm trying to avoid the one so I can get the 10s. But I've realized that every 10 that I've experienced in my life is actually because of ones, not in spite of ones, right? And too often, I find that people, you know, and sometimes I'm guilty of this, but I really try not to be. More often than not, I'm not. But people at scale are stuck in what I call the zone of comfortable complacency, this, this four to six range where it's like, you got a job, it's fine, you go to work, like, you don't love it, you don't hate it, like, eh, like, all right, cool. Or you're in a relationship and like, you, you know, it's not like toxic, it's not abusive, but you know, you're just cohabitating, coexisting, it's like five, day, you know, day after day, year after year, five, five, five. And because people are so afraid to take any sort of risk or accept any sort of discomfort in their life, they're just sitting in the zone of comfortable complacency. But when you hedge against those ones, that downside risk, you also take off the table, the tens, the opportunity to feel that full, full zest of life. And so, you know, for me and a lot of my mission is, is not to say them some sadistic, masochistic, go beat yourself up, but it's say, you got to step outside that comfort zone. You got to take some of those risks. You got to do things that are different and shake it up because that actually unlocks the door to those tens. And so me against the world has just been a way for me to learn that lesson. And when I've learned in those lessons of rowing that boat across Drake Traffage, walking, you know, solo across Antarctica for 54 days, in those depths of those moments, I've actually been able to retrain my mind to embrace those 
those ones. Not like I'm loving it. Not like I'm loving this, you know, freezing cold, afraid feeling inside of me, but I go, ooh, cool. Well, if this is happening, that must mean on the other side of it, I'm opening the door to these tents. I'm opening the door to these peak arcs of life. I love it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you said a couple things there that made me think about folks, I, other folks I've interviewed. I was talking to Rory McIlroy, the PGA star once, and he was saying to me about that space between your ears that the most difficult golf course on the planet is the six-inch track between your ears because it is such a mental, mentally exhausting challenge to win major championships. And then you discuss complacency. I asked Nick Saban once, what is the greatest threat to excellence? And he said, complacency is the blatant disregard for doing what's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's it's fascinating to me how their tutelage and your experience are so are so in line with one another. You know, I, I want to discuss something that really hit me uh, very early in the book was you discussing going to that dinner with all those fancy pants Fortune 50 CEOs or whomever they were, and feeling out of place and feeling like it wasn't your people, especially, but. When you're leaving the dinner, having a eureka moment and a tremendous moment of clarity when someone in their 80s walks up to you, damn near in tears, who desperately needed to hear your message, who desperately needed to see exactly what you just said to us, the willingness to challenge self and not sit and be comfortable is vital if we want to live our fullest life and become our truest self. I want you to share, I don't want you to give away your book, but yeah, yeah. that was, no, the, no, was it's, a beautiful moment to read in my estimation. Share, share with us what that taught you. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a reason I, I, I opened the book that way. Um, and, uh, if, if we share a little bit about the first story, hopefully that just piques people's interest to say, I want to go buy the whole rest of the book. Cause, uh, the, the I'm an author continue too. To I flow. understand you don't want to give away your whole No, book. no, it's good. No, 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 it's deal. good, man. No, it, I opened the book there for a reason. Cause I think it's a, a great framing on, on everything that I, I stand for. And it was like you said, a perfect Eureka moment for me. So as you said, I'm, I'm in this, uh, I'm in this fancy Manhattan penthouse, um, and uh, I usually just come as I am. So I showed up in a black T-shirt and, and jeans, and uh, I get to this fancy pants doorman. And the first thing he says to me is, "He goes, I've told you this before. If you're with catering, you got to use the you know the service elevator." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "I'm pretty sure I'm expected at the penthouse." And he's like, just looking at me, like just <laughs> just eyeing me, like mash taters go in back air, bud. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they, they finally do let me up there. But sure enough, I walk into this room. I'm giving a speech to about 500, you know, Wall Street guys, but they invited me to this uh, kind of smaller dinner with like eight to 10 folks, um, like CEOs, big hedge fund managers, you know, super successful guys, all like, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s. But of course, they're, they're suited and booted. You know, they got the custom suits and the you know $100,000 watches. And, the, you know, we know the New York finance kind of vibe. Um, Nothing wrong with that necessarily, but just no, not, not exactly my normal uh, dinner table hang. Um, so we have a great conversation. We're having a great conversation. And, and one of my favorite questions, they're asking me all the time, oh, did you see dead bodies when you're up there on Everest? You know, like, did you, uh, you know, what was it like rowing across Drake Passage? Man? Did you? Did I? Yeah, yeah, I did see dead bodies up there. Yep. Um, and I've been on the mountain when people have died. Uh, not anyone I was with uh, on Everest, fortunately, but yeah, it's a dangerous place, so no doubt. Anyways, so they're, they're asking me those same types of questions, and we're going back and forth, sharing stories, stuff like that, and sometimes when 
one of my favorite questions to ask. You know, I have a nonprofit where I ask this to school kids, but in my you know public speaking at you know big companies, ask this question. I think it's just a good question. It says, "Look, hey, my childhood dream was to climb Mount Everest, and I've been fortunate to climb that mountain twice." Um, but what's your Everest? Like, or what was your Everest? What's your Everest? It's just like a, a thought starter around. It's an obvious metaphor. You know, I can say it to an eight-year-old. He understands what I'm saying. An eight-year-old's like, you know, my Mount Everest to be the first person in my family to graduate from college or to make sure the snow leopards are off the endangered species. You know, thousands, of, you know, I've heard thousands of kids answer this question. It's always fun. But adults have great questions, answers this question too often. These guys were gregarious and confident and excited. And I asked this question and it's crickets. Like these dudes are just kind of like looking around, like, you know, we've all been at like a dinner where like someone says some awkward comment and like, it just kind of like, oh, uh, uh, and I'm like, wow, I didn't expect that, but we kind of just brushed past it. Take a little sip. Yeah, yeah exactly. Take a little sip and just kind of kind of look in the other direction. And it's like, oh, I did not realize that that was going to not land here. Okay, whatever. But as you mentioned, Marty, the, uh, I'm getting ready to leave at the end of the dinner and this older gentleman, I peg him, you know, 75, 80 years old comes up. And he taps me on the shoulder, says, can I have a minute? And we have this conversation and, and he's nearly crying. And, and he says to me, he goes, I'm sorry about myself and my friends here. You asked us an important question and, and none of us answered. And he's like, but I've been thinking about it ever since. And then he says to me, he goes, look, as you can tell, I've made more money than you can possibly imagine in my life. He goes, but there's not a single day that I don't go back in my mind this moment when I was a kid at the summer, summer camp in the Catskills on a rowboat and the peace and the simplicity of that. And he goes, in that moment, I realized I stopped asking myself that question of what do I want? What do I care about? What's my Everest? And he's looking at me and he basically says, man, I wonder where life would have turned out for me had I asked myself that question sooner. And it was so interesting because obviously this guy's the classic archetype of the guy who has it all, the quote unquote, you know, success, master of the universe, you know, whatever. And he was sharing this vulnerable moment with me of like, man, I missed it. I missed it. I missed some of it. And I think what's interesting is that question, what's your Everest? It's meant to be open-ended because it's like my Everest is not your Everest. You know, it doesn't you make a million dollars, save a million lives. It's not to vilify this guy for making a lot of money. That wasn't the point of this. But it's to say you can look at someone from the outside and think this. But inside, if they're not living their truth, their passion, taking the risks, climbing their own mountain, you can end up on a top of a bunch of other mountains. But if that's not your Everest, if that's not your passion, your heart, your soul – then you end up as an 80-year-old man in a fancy Manhattan penthouse, you know, full of regret. And I think that's scariest. probably not the, the life le best lived. That's the scariest thing. To me, that is a terrifying prospect. It is a terrifying yeah. prospect to, to, to fall into the rhythm of what you're supposed to be in society's eye versus what you're supposed to be in your soul. And that is that, that just... I hope I'm never in that position. I try to live my life in a way that I'm not. But look, man, there, there are plenty of moments right now. I'm 46 years old, man. Uh, I'm full of gratitude for my success professionally. I'm full of gratitude for my family life. But there are many. Hi, guys. I tape in a coffee shop, Colin. People say hello all the time. I love um, it. I, I'm in a moment now where I'm constantly self-evaluating in the, not not in terms of what success is supposed to be but fulfillment mm -hmm. i want fulfillment man i'm damn near at the century mark it scares the hell out of me to be that guy you met at that dinner 
I mean, it literally, the first line of my book, literally first sentence, sentence one of the book is, what if I told you I found a way for you to live a more fulfilling life? And the, you know, I open with that for a reason, because I think in the end of the day, that's mostly what we're chasing. And that's to say that can't, fulfillment can come in the form of financial success, that can come in the form of family, that can come in the form of anything, right? But what is that for you? And more importantly, this 12-hour walk, this invitation to take this journey of your own into your mind, which is accessible to anyone, is meant as a reset, is meant as a reset to say, don't wait until you're 80 to look back on your life and go, oh man, I missed it. Check in with yourself. Check in with yourself. Take these moments in time, these inflection points. You know, the subtitle of the book is invest one day, conquer your mind, unlock your best life. Because it's like, you can really look deeply inside of yourself and make small pivots. You know, if you reorient, you know, 3% this way, 5% this way, but over time consistently, you end up where you want to be going. But if you let a decade go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get to this by the time I retire and so I can hit the golf course and blah, blah, blah. You run out of time, man. You run out of time. I won't, I won't ask you to share this. I'll, I'll say it quickly so Wes can get to his next question. But so you guys watching and listening know, Colin devised this 12-hour walk in a moment almost every one of us lived and can relate to. That was during the COVID pandemic, during lockdown, during isolation, when he was caught in the doldrums of the insecurity of, oh, my gosh, what if this is my life for the rest of time? I'm sitting here sleeping late. I start drinking too early, the whole thing that many of us live. That was the same life a lot of us lived. And one day he woke up and said, this is not how I'm going to be. And he handed his wife his cell phone and went for a walk. And 12 hours later, he came home and he had a revelation during that time. And that was the manifestation of this beautiful philosophy and text that he has that you guys, again, can, can get today. So... Make sure you do that. It's fascinating. All right, I'll shut up. Wes, go ahead. There are so many great stories in the book, and you know we've touched on a few of them, but I am most intrigued by your coach, uh, Mike McCastle, and the workouts he puts you through. I mean, we, we don't all have access to those kinds of workouts, but in a weird way, when I'm reading them, because they're so different, you know, they almost sound fun. <laughs> yeah. But... What, what what is a a day with McCastle like, dude? This guy is. I mean, you're you're a badass. Don't get me wrong, but this guy is like he can't be human. They're only fun he, if you're demented, like Colin. Yeah. So Mike McCastle, man, that guy is a legend, and a legend among legends. He <clears throat> so. Just a quick, you know, you, you teed off my resume. Mike McCastle's resume is insane. Um, he he held the world pull-up record, 5,806 pull-ups in 21 hours, holding a while also wearing a 30-pound weight vest just for fun. Like, I could do, like, nine pull-ups or something he, he like beat, that. He beat David uh, David Goggins, did yeah, he? Yeah, he beat Goggins' record by, like, I don't know, 1,500 pull-ups or something like that. I didn't think uh, anybody could like beat Travis that, Travis on a Saturday night. <laughs> the uh he what else? <laughs> what else? i mean he's he's done wild he uh he pulled a f250 truck by himself to 20 miles across uh um death valley you know 120 did it break degrees. down did, yeah he was like he was like oh break gosh but pull this thing back to vegas or something like that that's an even crazier story because he didn't even barely tell anyone he literally this is how low-key this guy is he flies to vegas 
and goes to the rental car office in Vegas and says, I need to rent a truck and then drives a rental F-150 truck. It's not like there's a big camera crew, but like whatever. And then just like pulls it off of the side of the road in Death Valley and just rocks this for 20. Like that's like, he's like, he's a badass, but he's also just like low key. Like he's just like, you know, just like, anyways, his resume is insane. He's done all these world records and badass, but I actually didn't know him by reputation. But we got introduced to each other when I was starting to think about training for Antarctica, my solo crossing of Antarctica. And this guy at the gym, I was looking for someone to train me. And this guy's like, oh, I, I, a friend of mine says, I know a guy. He's an incredible trainer. You guys should meet each other. And you know when you just sit down with someone like one minute in and you're like, man, we are like forever like kindred spirit brothers, like, you know, to the end of time. Like we both just felt it. It was just unspoken. It was like, oh. I get you. Because he's like, hey, man, I'm trying to pull this sled across Antarctica by myself and this. And we're not like riffing on resume. He just looks at me. He's like, I understand. Let's get to work. <laughs> like, you know, just like that. And what's interesting is about uh, about some of these projects I've done, particularly the solo Antarctica crossing. And I was also the first person to row this boat across Drake Passage with my team, the most treacherous stretch of ocean in the world. Is that there's no when you do something? I've set some you know ten world records, but those two are also world firsts. No one's ever done this, which means there's not a blueprint. You know, uh, you know, as genius as you mentioned Saban before. You know, Saban is, is a genius among genius in college football. But you know, there exists a tutelage before that, people to learn from, people you know have like right, and then you improve on it. But when you're doing a world first, like you can't call anyone up and be like, "Yo, so when you walked across Antarctica solo, like how did you train for this? You know, how, how did that work?" And I think for a lot of for a lot of trainers and a lot of coaches, you know that that might be a little bit a little bit uh, overwhelming. But McCastle was like, "Whatever, man. If we can't go to Antarctica to train, I'm bringing Antarctica to you." And so he did put me through these crazy workouts. You know, he would have me. He'd be like, "Okay, Colin." Well, I think you might die out there. Let's just be honest. You could die out there. How might you die? Okay, you're at the end of a t long day. You're tired. you got to tie these knots to, to get your tent in place. You don't have an extra tent. If that tent blows away, it's 50 miles per hour wind. Your tent blows away. You're dead. You're alone in Antarctica. Like, there's no one coming to get you. So we got to make sure you're dialed for that. I'm like, okay, how do you train that? And he's like, all right. Put your feet, put your foot in these ice, but put put your uh, hands in these ice buckets. So he's got me doing a plank in, in my hands and ice buckets and push-ups and planks until I can barely. I'm so out of breath and my hands are completely frozen. And then he's like, "Don't take your hands out until I let you." Push-ups, planks. Your hands are in there. Hands are in there. And all of a sudden he's like, "All right, do a wall sit." Get out, do a wall sit, but now my feet are in the ice buckets. And he goes, you can't take your feet out of these ice buckets until you solve this. And he puts a weight plate on my, uh, on my uh, knees because I'm doing a wall sit. And then he hands me a Lego box, a literal oh Lego gosh. box. Like you would have this shit. And he goes, he goes, there's 16 steps in this and here's the instructions. A nine-year-old should be able to solve this, but you can't get your feet out of there until you solve this. My hands are frozen. And at the same time, he's like yelling at me in my ear. And he goes, you got to answer my questions. What's nine times nine? What's a hundred times this? Who's, who was the president in 1965? Who was of this because he's trying to build this table from ikea <laughs> exactly so i mean it sounds like crazy while singing working man's phd <laughs> exactly so i'll tell you what that moment did happen uh my previous book the impossible first i actually opened with a scene where i let go of my tent accidentally and almost flies away late in the late in the day and he is just a master of figuring out how to train the body, the mind in these unique ways. I'll give you another one, which is Drake Passage. 
I'm, you know, I'm doing this rowing project and I'm, I'm a pretty novice rower when I uh, set out to set this this world record. But he's like, all right, man, we trained you up for Antarctica. No one had done this. Now let's figure out how to train you how to row a boat across this most dangerous ocean in the world. It's 40 foot swells. There's icebergs. The Drake Passage is straight up like this from southern tip of South America to Antarctica. It's cold. It's brutal. And I'm going to be in an open whole rowboat. So, you know, there's no, nothing protecting me from the elements. It's a 28 foot long, but it's only rides about three feet off the water. Um, and so I'm just going to you know, taking these waves in the face for day after day after day after day. And so I'm thinking, how, how is he going to simulate this? But I was like, he's always got some crazy plan. He's like, all right, man, like, you know, we, we do some gym sessions, just normal stuff, whatever. And then we have like a normal schedule, you know, what I forget, you know, Tuesdays, Wednesday, whatever our session is. And all of a sudden, it's like the middle of the night. I'm sleeping in my house in Portland, Oregon with my wife, Jenna. And all of a sudden, 2 a.m. my castle I just hear I feel these two hands on my shoulders just shaking me I'm like I must be dreaming he's like get up it's time to get to work and I'm like what what he's in my bedroom obviously my wife had arranged this with him and given him a key and he's like it's time to get to work man and so he so he pulls me outside in my backyard it's dark it's the middle of the night and he's set up a rowing machine but you guys know what a bosu ball is you know like the half balls that you like balance on in the gym so he set up on four BOSU balls a rowing machine. And I get on there and he goes, start rowing like as fast as you can. So I'm grinding. I'm like literally like in my, you know, barely just like washing the sleep out of my eyes and I'm rowing. And now all of a sudden it's on BOSU balls. So he starts shaking it. He's like, you think the Drake passages are up? And he's shaking this rowing machine. So it's bouncing all over the place. And I'm like bouncing all over the place, middle of the night, you know, rowing this boat. And then all of a sudden I look over and he's got a couple of these five uh, gallon buckets of ice water and he's like you're not stopping for the next two hours and he just starts dumping literally bucket after bucket of ice keep rowing keep this you're gonna be sleep deprived you're gonna be tired you think this this is your backyard man there's gonna be 40 foot swells so anyways i could go on and on bottom line is mike mccastle is an absolute badass if you don't know him look him up on instagram he's a legend um one of them also even though I'm, I'm making him sound to sound like this, like kind of like militant badass. He's also one of those most soft-spoken, chill, low-key, kind, big-hearted dudes you will ever meet. Um, Dude, but... he looks like he could be the manager at like a Best Buy. Like he's the most <laughs> unassuming looking dude, but he's also like the greatest personal trainer or the worst personal trainer, uh, depending <laughs> on your preference. Of all time. Nah, he's the man. And I, I love how you said that. Almost sounds fun. I, I would say the same. There, there are some one moments in there. But in the end of the day, the training and working out with him, he's taken me to the next level. There's no doubt about really it. really appreciated that part of the book, though. Like, you, you've done amazing things, some really cool stories. But I, I liked the behind the scenes of like, okay, I didn't just do this by myself. Like, I, I needed some help. And I, I appreciated that. That was cool. The absolute 100%. worst part of reading about the Drake Passage was reading about your sleeping quarters when the conditions got a bit too rough and you're laying in vomit uh, with no room to move. Uh, like, like, dude. That also I, sounds like Travis I, on I was Saturday on an night. Airplane. I was on an airplane to Nashville, Tennessee, reading, sitting in first class with a cocktail the most bougie thing ever, reading about you and your boy crammed in this hole together in the fetal position. I, I just, y'all got to read this book. It's, it, it'll make you feel really small. All right, I got a million questions, but I, we'll get you out of here on this. So K2 kills one in six, right, who attempt to, to climb this beast. You've, you've lost friends there yourself. 
Put me in the mind of an adventurer for a moment. Why do odds like that entice people like you? And how do you carry those guys with you on your next forays, on your on your subsequent forays? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, yeah, K2, for those that, that don't know, the K2 is the second tallest mountain in the world. Uh, so Everest, of course, is the tallest. K2 is the second tallest. Um, it's in Pakistan, rural Pakistan, in a mountain range called the Karakoram. It's 28, over 28,000 feet high, huge mountain. Um, but even though it's the second tallest, it's it's much more dangerous than Everest. Everest is already quite dangerous, but uh, K2, in terms of the just the route and the, the, the steepness and the rock fall, and the, I mean, it's just a much more complicated mountain to climb. Um, so for a lot of mountaineers, myself included, it sort of lived in the zeitgeist of your mind as like the, the real, you know, the world knows about Everest, but the mountaineers are like K2, you know, that's, that, that's the one, um, what we were attempting over there actually was something, <laughs> and it sounds even more ridiculous. Those odds are correct. You know, about 20, 20% of, uh, people that summit K2 have died. Um, but that's in the summer season. Now, K2, uh, up to this point, had never been summited in winter, uh, and so we were actually attempting to climb K2 uh, in the dead of winter, um, kind of upping the stakes. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a hard one to answer um, because, as you mentioned, I won't go into all the details. You should check out the book, but I, I, I lost some friends over there um, in, a, in a series of bad accidents, um, which is, you know inevitably not that surprising given what the stakes are going over there so your question is well why the hell go over there in the first place like why you, know, you read that should that they'd be like well then don't go there you know like you know, no most rational minds would say that um i don't know if i have the number one best answer to this question other than to say i can remember when i was uh 13 years old i read a book by john krakauer called into thin air Are you guys familiar with that book yep, yeah yep. absolutely um is you know it's a book about an Everest climbing disaster. Eight people die. Um, really tragic story. And funny enough, I remember reading that book and feeling terrible for all the people and the families and the loss and the sadness. But I also remember setting that book down, going, "I want to go there someday. I want to go there someday." And it would be easy to frame that and say, "Oh, that's just some some sick thing in your brain that's like people die. You want to go check that out." But I also think, you know, people have asked me often. They say, "Colin." Are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of dying? And I thought about that question a lot. And the short answer is, yeah, man, I'm afraid of dying. I don't want to die. And having experienced now death up close, um, losing friends, you know, there's not a day that goes by that, you know, I tear up driving in my car sometimes, man, like thinking about my buddies that I never get to see again. It's horrible. You know, that, 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 that sadness, that trauma, that never goes away. But I also say this. My bigger fear, my bigger fear is not living. My bigger actual fear is not living. My bigger fear is being that old gentleman at the Manhattan penthouse going, I read books and then I thought, nah, I'm not going to go there. So it's a balance, man. It's a dance. I, I want to I be an old man. And I've had a visualization of myself as an old man holding my wife's hand. We're 90 years old, surrounded by kids and grandkids and a full life going, wow. Wow, what a ride. What a ride. So maybe it's me wanting my cake and eat it too, man. I want to be an old man one day, but I want to be an old man being, I lived. I lived. I lived. You got time. I know we got to let you run. I, there's, there's two more that I got to ask. Let's I'm go. Sorry. Let's go. Let's go. Number one, how is the next adventure devised? I, like, I have this vision of you and your boys sitting around 
slamming cold beers and playing like I dare you and being like, all right, I dare you to load up a sled and sled by yourself across a continent and it's never been done before. And you're like, all right, hell, that sounds fun. Sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. I know it's probably extremely meticulous, as you were talking about with, with the training process, every single T and I, right? But how do you come up with this stuff? Yeah, you know, uh, it, it, it's a, there, there's, no, there's no scientific process. It, it's what piques my curiosity, what parts of the world haven't I explored, but honestly, more importantly, what parts of myself haven't I explored, right? How can I go deeper? How can I, how can I go into that, that mind, body, spirit? Um, and it's fun, you know, you asked a question earlier, Wes did sort of about what drives me. Is it just the next record? Is it the ego? Is it the, the completion, the achievement? Um, and one of the benefits I think in my life at this point of, of having had, you know, a decent level of success is I actually don't feel pressured by that anymore. It's more like, man, like what's going to light me up and who can I share that experience with both, you know, in a, in a larger sense, they're writing books and sharing stories, but also in that moment, like who do I want to be on that expedition with? Who do I want to have a life experience with? Cause you know, this, you know, whether, whether that's your professional life or whatever, when you have like a ride or die friend or community, or you have these experiences together, like you're, you're bound to that person forever through these memories. And so even at that point, I mean, it sounds silly, but that's part of it. Like who's crazy enough to want to go suffer with me in some wild ass, you know, you know, corner of the world. Um, and so, so there's, there's no playbook there to me. It's not, I don't think of myself as evil Knievel. And I, I love evil Knievel, you know, from, from back in the day, but I think that there was a little bit of that, which was like a stunt. Oh, what's my next stunt? What's your next magic trick? You Go should do bigger. your next Go stunt further. dressed as evil Knievel. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's, it's actually, so I was waiting to tell you guys, you know, I haven't told anyone this, but it's this, I'm going to pull my sled across Antarctica the other way wearing the evil Knievel costume. So that, that's the next thing. Uh, uh, but no, no. And I say this with all sincerity, you know, answering that question myself, it's kind of what's your, you know, what's your Everest? I, I asked that to the room of guys, I asked tons of people. I got to ask myself that question over and over again, Colin, well, what's your next Everest? And that's been an iterative of these different things. But truthfully in this moment, and look, I've got some big badass expeditions planned, no doubt about it. And I'll share it with everyone. But my next Everest in this moment, not just because I'm on book two right now, but truthfully in my heart is to inspire 10 million people to take the 12 hour walk. I think this is an accessible thing. Pick up the book. You'll understand more about it. But it is something that all of us can do. You don't have to fly to Antarctica. You don't have to try to climb Everest. You can literally do this thing right out your front door, and it will have a lasting impact. And the world that I say that, maybe it's selfishly, but the world that I want to live in, I want to live in a world where more people, millions more people are equipped with the possible mindset, are no longer living this life in a zone of comfortable complacency stuck between four and six. And I have come up with a way for people to snap out of that in a single day. And so just like I said, maybe it's selfish, but I want my friends, my neighbors, the world to be lit up by more people taking on these adventures and these challenges. And I, you can literally do what I'm talking about right out your front door. So my next Everest is that, man. I'm passionate about it and spreading that word. Anybody can do it. That's one part of the book that, that resonated with me as well. Uh, you don't have to be a phenomenal athlete. You don't have to be in the greatest shape in the world. But you just got to unplug and walk out the front door. Brother, uh, thank you so much for your spirit. Uh, you've impacted us so deeply today. Uh, and, and I'm full of gratitude for your time. I know doing book tours, you're probably doing a million of these and, and spending 45 minutes with one, with one bunch of idiots is, uh, is a lot to ask. So thank you, brother. Best of luck with the book. Everybody go get it. The 12-hour walk. Go get it right now. Colin, thanks so much, brother. Good luck in your future adventures.
My pleasure. Thank Thanks, guys, for spending the morning. Yeah, I appreciate you. Guys, one of our amazing partners here at the Marty Smith Podcast is my great friends at Moultrie. More than 35 years ago, Moultrie pioneered the game management category. Today, Moultrie is one of the best-selling brands of game cameras and feeders in the world, and it continues to innovate with new technology that hunters and land managers rely on. Defined by the foundations of reliability and ease of use, Moultrie products are always field-tested and designed for hunters by hunters. Combining forward-thinking innovation with time-tested practicality, Moultrie consistently demonstrates what it means to be the most trusted name in game management. Check them out. MoultrieFeeders.com to learn more. That's M-O-U-L-T-R-I-E-F-E-E-D-E-R-S.com. MoultrieFeeders.com. I will tell you, I did just send a bunch and I mean a bunch of trail cameras to one of my friends in college football, one of the head coaches who has a lot of land and wanted to have some trail cameras out there. When I saw this head coach recently, we started talking about hunting season coming up, our food plots, everything that you do to get ready for hunting season. And I asked him, you got any trail cameras out there? And he's like, no, nah, I'm in the market. I said, let me send you a couple. Let me send you a few. You can check them out. And the one that I'm sending him, the ones, I mean, it's a bunch. These cameras are amazing. Now, they have SD cards, okay? And they can take 13,000 photographs on four batteries. But they also have solar panels. You can stick on them, too. There's either 16 gig or 32 gig SD cards. And then they have, there's a smart card reader that you plug, you put the SD card in the smart card reader, and then you can plug it directly into your phone. So you can see everything that's going on on your land right there. 13,000 photos on four batteries. SD card goes right into your phone, and you can check out everything that's going on on your land. I love it. Y'all check them out. MoultrieFeeders.com and get yours now. So there were a lot of takeaways from that conversation for me. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot. We did the interview late, late last week, and I'm real like I, one of the things that stood out to me most was what I said to, to Colin about the impact of a parent's belief in you, and the impact of that urging and that unwillingness to settle uh that his mom had and demand of him look this sucks obviously you're in tremendous pain but you ain't dead and we're gonna make sure that everything that we do from this point forward enhances your life and they like there's there's such a multi-tiered lesson within that that now is innate within colin and I just found that to be so important as a dad who right now is trying my best to navigate. I got a 16-year-old who's working through all of that, rising junior in high school. I got a 13-year-old who's going into eighth grade. And I got a 10-year-old who's going into fourth grade. And you're trying, like, like my job as a dad is not to be your friend. My job as a dad is to raise a young person 
who has empathy and compassion for others, who understands the value of hard work, who understands that lending a hand is important, and who understands that giving every last ounce of yourself is the only answer. And that is a hell of a thing because I'm, if I'm being honest, I'm not seeing that in everyday walk from my kids. And so I'm, um, I thought that that was really cool. And of course, on top, like, like Wes, all the different adventures that he is detailing for us I just I, it's it's beyond my comprehension. Yeah, I really I, I like how do he that. goes behind the scenes. I, I pointed that out in the interview, but the way the book sets up, you know, you can pick up and read any chapter about about anything because every adventure applies to some different lesson that he's trying to teach. Um, there's one about following your gut when he climbs on K2. I won't give that away, but I mean, holy crap, the things this yeah, guy has is right. learned the hard way but that's what his book is all about is he's like you're not going to learn important lessons about life if you don't put yourself in tough situations and that's what he does so i guess in a way travis you are kind of living that colin o'brady lifestyle because <laughs> you are you're putting yourself in harm's way a lot man and, and i respect that my hat's off to you i can tell you wesley firsthand from having sat at the soho house pool with travis for hours on end uh he's definitely on the grind brother he um he knows how to put in the time what what i appreciated the most out of colin was because with him and with people that do things like him everyone always asks about you know death and his comment about i don't you know yeah i fear it but i also there's i fear regret and not you know living my life to the fullest so it's not that i'm like this person's just not scared of dying it's that I'm scared of not living. Yeah, it's easy to say that. A lot of us would say that, but he, he actually it. puts it into practice in quite literally an unprecedented way. I mean, I mean, he's one of one in so many different ways. Like, he doesn't just seek the adventure that the other guy accomplished. He seeks the adventure and the exploration and the challenge that no human being has ever completed. And it's just a different, it's a different plateau. It's a different mindset. I'm going to put you on the spot. I think we need to set up some sort of charity triathlon and you, you Colin, in a third person, do some sort of uh, triathlon for raise money for a charity. Okay. Um, what do you think well, of he's that? He's doing the swimming part. He's going to do the swimming Marty's part. On an electric I can handle bike. the running and the cycling. Yep. What's that, Hoss? <laughs> Marty's on an electric bike just to, you know, give us a little bit of a leg up. It's kind of like a golf scramble, no, help the no, score Mar out. Marty can, do the, Marty can do the running and the biking. I, I know he can. But, he, but look, let's, let's go for the goal. Let's be the best we can be then we here. Find, then we find somebody else out there, and we, we, do, we do some charity uh, triathlon with Colin and somebody else. Um, Maybe Heinz Ward. Let's get Heinz Ward in. I think we need to get Colin. My hair look good? Colin Your a, hair looks uh, phenomenal. We need to get Colin like an outsider hat or shirt or something. So the next time he's like walking to Mars or whatever he's doing next, he can he can have some outsider gear on. That's a good call. Um, we I mean we we could sponsor him. I'm sure that that's in our uh, yeah. marketing budget. We're all the, we're the people that make these decisions too, by the way. So. All right, I uh, I appreciate Colin. What an uh, what an amazing person, inspirational dude, and. Um, Listen, go get the book. 
the 12 hour walk uh you will be inspired and you will be what again what really struck me about reading it was how applicable and relatable it was to my life and i've never gone to mars i've never gone to pluto i've never gone to antarctica like colin has but i did sit there during covid yep when we were all cooped up in our homes and with 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 truly like no concept of what the world was going to be and fear about what that looks like and and concern for am i ever going to get to go back and do what i love Mm -hmm. that was all very relatable and applicable to my life and rather than sit there and wallow in self-pity and concern and worry because i mean if you're a believer it's written anyway he made the decision i'm gonna leave my phone here and he looked at his wife and said honey i'm going for a walk and that walk that day on the oregon coast spawned this entire movement yep the 12 hour walk go get it you can get it at, at all your retailers right now colin would certainly appreciate it and as somebody who's an author i can't tell you like what it means i i had an interesting moment and i'll shut up and we can wrap it up after this but it's crazy like it's it's crazy what that book is to me and I'm so excited to write my next one, but I was leaving the concert Saturday night. Actually, it was Sunday morning at this point. And my boy Lewis introduced me to some guys on Luke's crew. And one of them said to me, man, I read your book, and it really impacted me. And I said, thank you so much. He said, Luke gave me his copy of your book and said, I want this back. And I still haven't given it back, and I don't plan to. Mm. I'll send you another copy, Luke. Might even autograph Just it. Stole the book. Speaking of, I know you want to wrap, but speaking of Sunday morning, how was your Waffle House after the concert? I'm guessing it was after oh, the I concert. Got a waffle, oh my I got gosh. a Waffle House story too. Let's uh, let's set them up. And let's hear it, Marty. Oh my gosh. So, it was phenomenal, and like it's it's. I so I'm an All Star breakfast guy. You cannot go wrong with the All Star. Detail your order for us. Okay, I got an all-star, and I like my eggs scrambled. I'm not like an over-medium guy. I want scrambled eggs. All right. I got uh, double toast. I got hash browns, which, look, we're southern boys, and not grits are fine. But if you go to Waffle House at 2.15 in the morning and get grits, <laughs> I'm going Grits are a little too... Liquid. You don't need. You don't need more liquid. I don't understand why you would go grits. And I asked one of my friends that that night. Like Waffle House hash browns are as close to perfection as there is in this, in this world. So scrambled eggs, hash browns. I go two sausage patties. I leave the bacon out, and here's why I leave the bacon mm-hmm. out. Because I love bacon, but I like my bacon dead. I want the bacon to be charred. And even they can if you do that te- up there, if you ask, even no, dude, yeah, that's a lie. That's a bold faced lie. You, they can't make it the right way. You can tell them. Listen, I want that pig to be singed like Lord of the Flies, <laughs> and it still comes out with gristle all over it. I don't want no gristle. 
So, all right, scrambled eggs, two sausage patties, hash browns, double toast, waffle on the side. Jesus. You're a wheat toast guy, right? You got to be a wheat toast, I don't right? think wheat toast exists at Waffle House, Wesley. It, it does. It does not. It does. I ate some this weekend. Dude, <laughs> did you get your hash browns steamed? Waffle House has Walmart white bread, full starch, like every hydrogenated oil known to man. They have the Wonder Bread, but they've got wheat, too. That's why it soaks up the booze so well, Wesley. All right. What's your order? Uh, well, I took our two-year-old to get her first all-star uh, this weekend, and she likes grits, so we got grits. We did get wheat toast, uh, scrambled eggs. Our bacon was pretty crispy, dude. I mean, it was black in some parts. So the Athens Waffle House might have the bacon that you're I'm gonna interested in. I'm going to put that to in. the test next time I'm down there in the What is the, what and, is Athens? Uh, the Athens is the what waffle. city? The classic city. The classic city. My, okay. My, my camera's not focusing here. But that's her. That, that so, is so cool. You dude. didn't get your uh you didn't get your hash brown steamed like our boy uh, Larry Fleet? I don't know if I understand that either. Like I want again, I want charred top. Like I want I feel like I'm all, like I'm nervous to ask about that because I feel like he was messing with us. Like I I'm still not convinced that he wasn't like pranking us or something. He may have been. Cuz that just sounds illegal. What do you get at Waffle House? You get an All-Star? Yeah. I usually get hash browns too, but Kate wanted grits, so that's what we got. Oh, so y'all shared a breakfast. Yeah, I didn't eat the whole thing. I wasn't hammered drunk. I was a sober father on uh, one of like four or five daddy-daughter dates at the Waffle House, the Athens Waffle House that morning. I will tell you. I can't speak uh, for those guys. Uh, Some of them looked like they were a little cloudy, but I was all right. I was on my A game. Waffle House is an interesting study. For the very first time in my life, I got turned away at the door. We went to. What did you do, man? Did you, we, you you said a cuss word, didn't you? No, I did not. Cuss in there. We, we, it, myself, my wife, myself, my wife, and and Kate, Lewis's wife. So we got an Uber, and we're in the Uber, and the Uber has like a disco ball in it. I mean, there's like lights flying around. It it was crazy, and and I was intoxicated, so it was a little extra crazy. While Lewis and and the boys took scooters so we get to the waffle house around the corner like a half mile from mercedes-benz stadium and it is packed to the gills i mean i can't there's not a seat available and there was a police officer at the door guarding the door and i grabbed the door and we whip it open and he's like i'm sorry folks uh we're we're at capacity you cannot come in it's going to be like 15 minutes i was like wait what at a waffle what and so we chose another location, and then we stood in line there for like 30 or 40 minutes. We were we were pulling the plug on that one, but we happened to get in right under the bell. And, even, uh, you know, a country music concert at Mercedes-Benz Stadium is the SEC well-represented every single fi- – I, I took pictures with Tennessee fans, Georgia fans, Alabama fans, Mississippi State fans uh, – let me see. That was there other LSU fans, like, and the Waffle House was the same way, same deal, at two fifteen in the morning. Yeah, 
I, Travis, have you ever been to Waffle House? I, well, so I was going to say I'm going to have to admit something and I might get kicked off the show. Is I've never been in a Waffle House. Ne- you've never been to I've Waffle House? I've never been to Waffle House before. Yeah. Wes, we are the worst See friends. See we are terrible show's friends. Over. We are failing, Travis. It's done. All right. Well, next time I see, actually, uh, maybe Austin, Texas will have a Waffle House for us on Tuesday night because we will almost certainly uh, have an elevated blood alcohol content. Yeah, I've never been. Thank you so much to our law enforcement officials all over the country working hard to keep our community safe. Fire and rescue, you guys are heroes. Thank you so much for running into the fire to save other people. And the United States military, thank you guys so much. We're so full of gratitude to be free. Your sacrifice allows us that. Thank you. Everybody have an awesome week. Thanks again to Colin O'Brady for his time and his inspiration and insight the perspective. Go get his book. And uh, tra- who's on your shirt again? Topanga. 12-hour 12, 12 walk. Here you go. And thank you to Topanga. And hold on. Thank you to Sadie. You guys like Sadie's Brian Bosworth neck roll? No, oh, she's ready to just lay somebody out. <laughs> yeah, she is. She looks she's like ready to Steve. put someone in CTE she looks like, protocol. She looks like Steve Grogan for the New England Patriots in 1986 when they got beaten by the Chicago Bears. Oh, she's tired. 46 she's bored to 10. of your yeah. Story. She loves our podcast. She's like Andy Katzenmoyer. Um, <laughs> she uh oh, hold on, don't take my mic out. She has that on because if I don't have that thing around her neck, she runs a what like she wedges her body through the porch and runs hither and yon. Okay. (laughs) Love you guys. Be good. We'll see you next week.